Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Elliot Peister, MD, MSc. He's an assistant professor of medicine at University of Pennsylvania, part of the Perelman School of Medicine, and he's an advanced heart failure and transplant medicine physician. So, Elliot, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you today. Yeah, tell me about your research and your work. Sure. In the most general sense, I, I am, as you said, a heart transplant physician, but uh, certainly a lot of what I do focuses on more of the research side of things, trying to develop a variety of sort of new diagnostic tools to help us do a better job taking care of people and sort of move at least my field of medicine and related fields into, into the 21st century a little bit. Specifically, I like to focus on advanced computer technologies, computer image technologies and applications to try and, and uh, modernize how we look at, think about uh, tissues and, and in general kind of heart diseases. What is heart failure? Like how is it defined and how does it manifest in patients? Yeah. So heart failure is a, is a condition. It's a description of a, of a series of, of both clinical findings and symptoms that patients feel, which describes a heart that's not doing a very good job of meeting the body's demands for blood flow. So the heart is a pump. Its job is to pump blood, which carries oxygen and nutrients, important stuff to all the rest of your body, which needs those things to work. And basically what heart failure is, is inability of that heart pump to do its job in terms of meeting the demands of the body. And, and, it, and it can happen for a variety of weak reasons, but, but basically the heart muscle becomes weak. Can't squeeze blood out very well and probably can't relax and receive blood very well either. So it's sort of pump failure. I and mean, it can happen because people have coronary artery disease, which is historically and still is the most common reason for that. People have heart attacks, atherosclerosis, and blockage disease, and that heart muscle gets scarred up and parts of it die and it just can't function very well. People also get uh, heart failure from other stuff, so-called big bunt, sort of this big bin of non-ischemic or non-coronary artery disease heart failure. I mean, that can be for a number of reasons, genetic causes, 
viral causes, inflammatory diseases, depositions of a variety of sort of proteins in the body, all kinds of things can cause this other grab bag of, of conditions, but it's also pretty common. And, and heart failure is a big deal. It, it remains basically cardiovascular disease, despite many other things, trying to catch up remains the leading cause of death, both, both nationally and worldwide. And heart failure these days is really how most of that death happens. People don't die from heart attacks as much as they used to. We've got decently good at Someone has a heart attack, we, we put a stent in, open a blood vessel up. They don't usually die from the heart attack as much as they used to, but instead they live long enough to get sick from heart failure on the back end. And so heart failure is a disease of the aging, a disease of Western civilization, and, and really is rampant. So, that's, so what happens when you're in heart failure? Are there stages to it? What are the symptoms? So when you're in heart failure, from a patient perspective, what they feel is usually uh, most prominently is just sort of an decreased ability to do the things they want to do. Because the heart isn't meeting the body's demand for blood and oxygen and all that stuff, the body doesn't perform well. People have decreased exercise capacity. They can't, you know, as it progresses, they go from not only not being able to do a lot of exertion, but they get to the point where they can barely go up the stairs without making base camp halfway up. They tend to notice that they start filling up with fluid. Their legs might swell. They might find that when they lay down at night to go to bed, they find themselves short of breath as sort of fluid backs up into the lungs. Manifests as fluid overload, as decreased ability to exercise. can also manifest as a variety of dangerous heart rhythms. And basically, from a patient perspective, that's what they feel. They feel like they just can't do what they used to be able to do or what they even do to just sort of take care of the basics. There are stages to it, certainly. People progress from no disease at all to sort of what we call subclinical disease, where there's evidence of some changes in that heart muscle, which the patient doesn't feel yet. And then they manifest what we kind of call overt symptomatic heart failure and then really that end-stage heart failure. And a lot of the time as people are making that later transition, they come to see people like me, advanced heart failure docs, who either are experienced at managing really sick hearts um, and also sort of understand if they're candidates for and when to pull the trigger on what we call advanced therapies, heart transplant and, and ventricular heart pumps uh, and so on. So what's, um, what about heart failure is understood versus what's mysterious about it? You know, the causes or yeah. how to deal so, with it. So, and I kind of alluded to it a little bit, what we understand pretty well is certainly we understand called ischemic cardiomyopathy or sort of heart attack related cardiomyopathy and weak heart muscles. So Heart failure caused by heart attack disease makes pretty good sense to us. We feel like we have a decent handle in the last few decades on what happens in coronary arteries that cause them to sort of start blocking off. And we kind of understand what happens as the plaques that form in our arteries, combinations of fatty stuff, cholesterol, inflammatory cells, as those things burst and block the blood flow to the heart muscle, we understand what happens. People have heart attacks, parts of the heart muscle that are supposed to be supplied by that blocked artery die and that heart muscle becomes weak because of that we, we do we feel like we have a decent handle on that process there's certainly other types of heart failure as i sort of said that aren't related to blockage disease that we don't understand as well which definitely been a focus of research in the last couple of decades focusing on genetic causes certain environmental causes that might explain why so many other people end up with weak heart muscles even having never had a heart attack in terms of the the deeper details of heart failure all the different um Things that are occurring at the level of sort of the heart and on a microscopic level, there's still definitely tons to learn. And for a while, we were sort of parked at the same four or five drugs for actually most of the present century we were. But over the last few years, we've actually had sort of a, a sort of rebirth of new drug classes and new and new ways to treat patients that really represent 21st century understanding of biology and sort of designing targeted drugs that, that use the best of modern technology to try and, and, and find new ways to 
help heart failure patients. And there has been in the last few years, some progress in that regard. Um, I think there's still plenty to make. I think we're just learning about how the heart as, as a muscle and as an organ sort of feeds itself, how it eats, what it likes to metabolize. And I think that's going to be a growth industry in treatment in terms of trying to provide hearts that don't work so well, the best nutrient content to make it function better. It turns out that's actually quite important, which I don't think was even recognized until the past 10, 15 years. And it's still definitely an active area of study. I think we're just starting to sort of crack the genetic picture of it and whether there will be gene therapies for that in the future, who knows, but certainly an area of active investigation. So I would say lots of progress, most of that progress in blockage disease, coronary artery disease, but increasingly progress in just generally understanding the heart as a, as a muscle and as, a, as, as an organ and, and, and trying to figure out ways to optimize it in and of itself instead of trying to treat the risk factors for coronary arteries and so on. Well, I heard from one person I interviewed that um, almost 90% of the circulation to the heart is through microvasculature and not the large vessels. And right. so even if someone doesn't have a heart attack, do you look to see if the microvasculature is all choked up? And if so, that could probably mimic or be worse than a regular heart attack or just as bad. Great question. So, yeah, the large vessels that everyone thinks about when they think about blockage disease, really all large vessels, they're conduits. They don't actually supply cells with the nutrients that cells need to do what cells do to live, to function. They're, they're the big, you know, it's sort of like the, it's sort of like the, the aqueduct in the city or, or, the, or the main water main. Nobody takes a bath or drinks water out of the water main. It's a conduit. We drink water and take baths and use toilets out of little pipes that are much closer to home. And there are many more little pipes than there are large water mains. So while certainly a water main break is a big deal or a blockage in a water main is a big deal, Usually when we have plumbing problems, or many times when we have plumbing problems, it's a little bit closer to home on those smaller pipes. And, and I think it's no different in the heart. It's, uh, the vascular tree, the sort of tree of plumbing, certainly has the large vessels, which are easy to see and easy to study. And, and that is where big heart attacks happen. But that doesn't mean that there's not a more sort of insidious, progressive disease of small vessels that, as you said, just as much of an impact on heart function and heart health. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Certainly when it comes to the sort of, I haven't even talked about this rel flavor of heart failure, but heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or sort of stiff heart disease. And there's a lot of thought that, that a gradual dying off and pruning of the small vessels is a big part of that. Um, when it comes to people who have significant diabetes, who end up with this sort of uncertain heart failure picture that again falls in the bin of, well, it's not coronary artery disease, but they definitely have heart failure. There's a thought that the, the diabetes Diabetes itself has led to significant damage in the small vessels, again, the way it does in the eyes and in the kidneys and in other parts of the body, that there's small vessel disease in the heart that's causing the heart to function poorly. I think there's no question that microvascular disease is important. I think it's been hard to study historically because the historical tool for studying vasculature was, was doing a cardiac catheterization, was sticking catheter into a large artery and shooting some dye and looking under an x-ray camera and 
that's great for seeing big pipes. It's not very useful for seeing microscopic ones. And so I think it's the barrier there has been how to best study it. And actually, it's for me an area of, of significant interest because as a transplant doc, we're also quite concerned with the microvasculature. When we do a heart transplant on somebody, not sure if we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but one of the ways that transplanted heart ultimately fails is through vascular disease. I mean, that vascular disease affects large vessels, but it definitely affects small ones too. And so I've, I've um, certainly dedicated some research time to studying on, on tissue samples, the quality and the content and the sort of density of those small vessels as I as, as hearts as transplanted hearts age and fail to understand who's at risk for and ultimately who's suffering from significant disease of those tiny vessels that are really the ones that actually feed the nutrients to the cells of the heart. So what can be done about the small vessels? Anything? Once they're in an advanced state of being clogged, I mean you can't put stents in a hundred or a thousand of them, right? Well certainly you can't. There would be no way to access them unless you you need like I said, you need some sort of extremely microscopic catheter to do it it just there'd be no way to do it mechanically the way we do it big vessel solutions mechanical solution it's, it's stick a catheter in blow up a stent in a balloon and and you know prop it open with scaffold that's not going to be the fix for a small vessel it can't be the fixes for small vessel disease i think come in a couple of different flavors one way to think about it is is there a way to identify at-risk people and initiate some sort of preventative approach certainly within the, the in the nearer future I, I i think that's probably got that's an important area to focus on because i think while we will try to develop and i'll get to them in a second some other more elegant fixes quite frankly identifying at-risk people and initiating prevention could be quite valuable for diabetics that would just mean good diabetic control but for other people and other conditions i think it's um when we think of small vessel disease it's usually it's largely inflammatory mediated so controlling inflammatory mediators both locally at the level of the heart and across the whole body might have a role in, in decreasing sort of the, the gumming up of these small vessels. I think understanding sort of how inflammation plays a role there and who's at risk for that type of low-grade inflammation that over time gums these vessels up is very important. Um, with the diabetics, it's sort of well understood, but with a lot of other conditions, it's less understood. I mean, I think that getting a feel for that, figuring out how to intervene on, on the sort of inflammatory conditions that damage microvasculature could be quite important. When it comes to other solutions, obviously, it'd be nice if there was a way to just regrow small vessels, so to sort of locally infuse the heart with uh, basically molecules that uh, tell tissue to regrow more blood vessels. In that, what, um, be- what happens in a in a heart transplant? You know, I, yeah, so take out, take out the old one, put in a new one, but you know, in the heart itself, all the microvascular, I guess, would be would be preserved. But how do you hook up the plumbing? Sure. So that you're not just hooking up the main arteries. Are there or do That's they, do. Do they <laughs> coalesce into main ones? I mean, is there, are there any hookups that are lost is what I'm saying. Yeah. So when we do, a, when, when a heart transplant is performed, what, what happens is, is, as you said, as you sort of alluded to, you know, what we do is we hook up just the big stuff because quite frankly, there's no good way to do anything else. Actually, surgically, there's just, you know, we're, we're, we, we are macroscopic beings with macroscopic hands and macroscopic tools and our surgeries are macroscopic procedures. So we're dealing with stuff we can see and feel and sew into and work on and cut and tie and hold pressure on. And that's just, that's just a, a limitation of being large. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And, 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 and so when we put a heart in somebody, we're, we're basically, there's basically sort of three 
points of sewing, or really, you know, just a couple of points of sewing where we, we sort of anastomos, where we sort of tie this new heart into the old, where we remove the old one. And that is most certainly done at the level of the very largest things in the heart. It's done at the level of the aorta, the largest artery in the body, and it's done sort of at the very tops of the largest veins. And so that is done, and we hook up the main or the main conduits, and we hope that the small vessels have survived the process and will, once blood flows down the main water main, so to speak, that it will just fill up those small vessels again. Because the small vessels are really derived off of the big ones, you hope that when you just take a healthy new heart, that it's got a healthy small vessel blood so you take in a heart that has healthy microvasculature and that you're, all you need to do is just plug it into the water main and it'll start working like eh, sort of like plugging a new, a new constructed house into the water main. Does anyone even image the microvasculature? Is it imageable? It's imageable. There are a couple of ways to image it. So uh, one way to image it that is performed, or at least that is in, is sort of an inferred approach, and that, that uses PET scanner technology, which is a form of CAT scan that uses positrons. Not really relevant to this conversation, but but it basically it's, it's a form of imaging test done by, by radiologists where you can get a feel for overall blood flow in the heart. And that is not just a large vessel phenomenon, but also a small vessel one. And there's definitely evidence that people with diabetes and microvascular disease have decreased blood flow reserves. And there's an overall decrease in, in sort of the, the pet tracers that they're looking at with the CAT scan. That they're not penetrating deep into the heart as well. And that's believed to represent microvascular disease. Um, and, it, and it does. But it's sort of an inferred way of doing it. And you're not actually really looking at the microvasculature. You're inferring it from the flow of a, of a tracer you're seeing under a CAT scan. The other way to image it, the way that I prefer, just because it's what I do for a living, not because the PET scan doesn't work, is I image it on tissue samples. So one of the things that comes along with getting a heart transplant for recipients of heart transplants is frequent biopsies. When we perform a heart transplant, top concern from a transplant physician standpoint is sort of this balance of um, preventing the recipient from rejecting the organ from having an immune response against the organ that came from somebody else and our body is is designed to fight off things that don't look like us. Um, so we put people on immunosuppression medicine. We try and suppress the drive to reject that organ. And, and one of the things we do as a transplant doctor is worry a lot and be vigilant about rejection. In hearts, when we do a transplant, um, we surveil our patients for rejection by regularly getting a small piece of tissue from their transplanted heart while they're using it. We actually do a catheterization procedure. We take sort of these little forceps and we actually bite off little tiny pieces of heart muscle about the size of a grain of rice. Um, and we do this every week for the first month and then every couple of weeks for the next few months and then monthly for the rest of the first year. So we're getting a dozen tissue samples from our transplant recipients in the first year alone just to keep an eye on things. So we actually get a lot of tissue from these people. And I actually like to look at that tissue to look at the microvasculature because it's an opportunity to to go right where the small vessels live in the tissue, put it under a microscope, and then use sort of modern image analysis to quantify it, to measure its content and quality of, of those small vessels. That's another way to image small vessels that's more direct. Of course, it requires actually going in and getting a piece of someone's heart, and, and that's fine for our transplant patients, but not a usual thing we do to other folks. So what, what happens to the piece of heart that rides along with the transplant? From the original person? Where does it go? Is it a certain function? When we do these biopsies? Oh, what can you tell from the biopsy of the existing heart? Like, what do you look for? What factors that helps you with the transplant? Got it. So once we perform that transplant, that's the heart we're biopsying. Once we put the heart in somebody, we're, we're biopsying that uh, transplanted heart that they're now walking around with. That's what we're grabbing our tissue samples from every few weeks. And and, and we look at that, uh, like I said, what we're doing is basically rejection surveillance. And so we take a piece of tissue, put it under a microscope, and, and the 
traditional approach is to look for basically sort of congregations of these little blue cells, uh, little blue immune cells or inflammatory cells. And we're trying to see, you know, basically if there are any of those little blue inflammatory cells, how many there are, how sort of diffusely they're spread about, and whether we think they're sort of starting to chew on and injure heart muscle cells. That's what we're looking for when we're trying to get a feel for whether there's rejection or not in a transplanted heart. And that's the historical reason for these biopsies. We've been doing it this way for 40 years. It's sort of just standard of care. Look under a microscope, count little blue cells, get a feel for it, and say whether we think they're rejected. A lot of my research focuses on trying to extract more information from these tissue samples than just that, using, again, tools that are not 40 years old, but tools that sort of represent the modern arsenal of computer technology and image analysis solutions to, to try and make the most of these sort of precious tissue samples and learn more about these patients, learn more about their body's immune response against that heart, learn more about whether we think this is somebody who's going to have risk of rejection in the future or other or microvascular disease in the future, and really just trying to, to do a better job learning from these tissue samples tailor people's care, really modernize it. Well, what happens during the uh, transplant process? Like you're doing this surveillance, what factors are you looking for? And it tells you, uh uh-oh, you know, rejection is starting to happen or something's going wrong. Yeah. So the the traditional, the, the established for many years now approach to rejection is looking at these tissue samples and basically assigning it a, a number, zero to three. Zero is no rejection. One's a little bit of rejection, but Usually we don't do much about it. Two is moderate rejection. Usually we treat that in some way. And then three is sort of rip roaring bad rejection. And that's about, that's pretty much all there is to it. Um, and the way they assign the grades, the pathologists, the zero to three grade is a rough estimate of how many little blue cells they see and whether they think they might be hurting heart cells. It's a subjective exercise. The, the historical literature makes it pretty clear that uh, one, what one pathologist sees when they look at a heart tissue slide is very different from what another might see. The agreement between expert pathologists is about 60%. Very good. So it, it's a field where, although we've been doing it this way a long time, it doesn't mean it's because it's great. It's because it's the tools that were available. Sort of this subjective, qualitative description of little blue cells. Um, something. And, and while it's okay, and you know, certainly it's pretty good for identifying really terrible things going on, or nothing at all. It's this sort of middle areas where we struggle to agree with each other and provide the best care for our patients. And that's that is um, that's really the 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 opportunity to use modern tools to do better. And that's sort of where a lot of the research that I've been working on comes into play. Is is yes, we could assign zero to three with pathologists and, and have them disagree with each other all the time and confuse the patients and confuse the, the heart transplant doctors trying to care for them. But if you automate the process, quantify what you see under a microscope. Uh, using modern image analysis and turn sort of the the histology slide, the the microscopic picture of the tissue into a a data set, real numbers describing what's going on, then you might be able to standardize the approach to grading a little more. might be able to sort of improve the agreement between people and then allow us to study things a little more deeply because of the fact that we're using a single set of rules now to describe everybody. And that's, that's, uh, it's it's an opportunity to use tools that exist in other industries with image analysis and computer vision and use them to start making an impact in, in, in medicine. Certainly near and dear to how I, I, I practice medicine and how I perform research. As a transplant doctor, we all just get tired of not understanding exactly what's going on with our patients. Well, all right. So question here. Uh, we know several places, at least in the human body, have their own microbiome. What about the heart? Has anyone looked? And the reason I ask is, you know, if I'm going to get a transplant, do I get antibiotics before I get the transplant? And then the transplant that's coming to me, has that person, I don't know, have they treated that heart with antibiotics? And if yeah. so, 
out on both ends, how does that affect the transplant and the ability of the heart to uh, you know reach its new home and stay there and not mm-hmm. uh, be rejected? So microbiome research in cardiovascular disease is a newish field. I guess it is everywhere to some degree, but it is a newish field, but actually seems to be developing a bit of traction. The effects of the microbiome on the heart are, so the heart itself doesn't have a local microbiome. First of all, it's considered a sterile organ. It pretty much is. There are no resident bacteria within the heart not like the gut or some other places where obviously there's large population of sort of resident bugs that just live there. The heart's considered a sterile organ. Um, it does not have bacteria growing on it or in it, but that doesn't mean it's not affected by bacteria that are otherwise living with us in other parts of our body. And, and I think that's where the sort of research into heart microbiome has come into play is what everyone has a gut microbiome. And the question was the gut microbiome we know releases various chemical and molecular mediators into our body and interact with it in certain ways in terms of our immune system and other things. And the question is, how do those interactions affect distant organs like the heart? And I think that is an open question. Certainly, there's been some speculation that certain microbiomes might be at increased risk of a condition we call myocarditis, which might or might not, uh, which which is an inflammatory disease of the heart or an inflammatory injury to the heart. I mean, there's been some thought that um, people with certain microbiomes are more likely to develop antibodies against bacteria in their blood in their in their gut the way we all might but that certain bacteria in our gut look more like heart muscle cells than than others and and, and the antibodies we might form against them over time might cross react with heart muscle and increase someone's risk of having an inflammatory heart injury or an autoimmune heart injury that's been studied in some detail i think how that translates to the care of transplant patients is also somewhat of an open question are there certain microbiomes that uh, increase someone's risk of having a rejection of that is the difference between the donor's microbiome and the recipient's microbiome a relevant factor in how somebody might receive and accept and tolerate the, the transplanted organ? I think those are great questions. I think they're questions that we don't have answers to, but I think they're questions that as we, as in general, microbiome research continues to grow, I think there'll be opportunities to, to sort of start merging fields that once upon a time seem very distant, but may in fact have may in fact have really direct relationships that aren't appreciated easily. Well, I've heard that atherosclerotic plaques do contain bacteria that appear to come from the mouth or are similar to ones in the mouth. So I guess at least bacteria would lodge in some veins and vessels. But you're saying that uh, have people looked yeah. in the heart to see if there's a microbiome there? Yeah, so transiently, transiently bacteria, you know, every time we brush our teeth, we, we get what we might call it a transient load of bacteria into our bloodstream. I think in terms of resident populations of bacteria within the heart muscle itself, it's pretty sterile. Again, you can culture it all day and all night and people have been in Nothing is supposed to grow and nothing usually does. It's really just a piece of the heart is compared to some organs in some ways sort of simple. It's really just largely a piece of muscle because of that. It's just got a dense blood supply, but doesn't really have a lot of a lot of other stuff, quite frankly, going on um, in terms of a microbiome. That doesn't mean that it doesn't see everything that flows through our blood, however, because you probably can imagine all of the blood in our body at some point flows through our hearts every time. It beats. And so I, I think there is, while there may not be large resident populations of bacteria, it doesn't mean, again, that resident populations of bacteria aren't affecting the heart. I think that's, I think it's important to sort of understand the difference between those things. It doesn't have to live there to affect it. We are a system as a body. And, and what happens one place can have 
important and direct effects on distant location. Um, and I think that's when it when it comes to the the sort of future of cardiac microbiome research, I think that's going to be the thrust of it. Yes, there's been some research on low levels of bacteria affecting the sort of inflammatory signatures of atherosclerotic plaques. But even most of the plaques themselves are usually more on the sterile side. They don't have to be, but they usually are. That doesn't mean that they don't have inflammatory cells. Those inflammatory cells are not primed by microbiome processes. But What do you think happens in a heart that has a murmur? You, know, you get some kind of, I guess I call it backwashing or you know, blood yeah. that stays resident a bit longer. Or in older hearts, I mean, for sure, some of the microvasculature is going to be plugged up. So you kind of have dead ends that the blood would maybe swish back and forth in and then eventually move through. So I would think that the residence time of blood in the heart's various structures would go up again with murmurs or defects or atherosclerosis. And I wonder if then it's more likely that bacteria would build up and hang out there or cause problems. So with murmurs, as you said, murmurs are, they come in a couple of flavors, but sort of the classic murmurs are, are murmurs as a result of uh, malfunctions of the valves in the heart. The heart has valves. Again, it's really a, largely a piece of plumbing. And the, those valves, the, there are sort of four major valves, and, and those valves can either become stiff and not let blood pass through them very well, um, in which case you get one kind of murmur, or they can become leaky and sort of have regurgitation of blood from one end back through when it's not supposed to. So that's sort of the two options. It can either leak backwards or sort of obstruct flow forwards. And uh, those are the those are the, the hemodynamic, or if you will, sort of causes of a murmur sound, either a tight one with obstructed flow or a leaky one. Definitely when you have leaky or even obstructive valves, it can affect how blood sort of circulates in the body and from that heart. And certainly you do get swishing around of blood when you have regurgitation and so some percentage of the blood will flow backwards and it'll circle and it'll sort of turbulently flow around before the next beat cycle and then sort of gets most of it again gets squeezed out. But if you sort of think about how long any given blood cell is going to stay in a heart chamber with your heart beating 60, 80, 100 times a minute, if even a third of the blood is regurgitating with each beat, it'd be pretty hard for after 60 or 80 beats, any one blood cell to still not have been pushed out. So they're not hanging around forever. That said, they do come back and circulate again. You know, the blood is always sort of leaving and then always sort of just minute, just moments away from returning again. And so the heart is awash in blood and whatever's in the blood is therefore in your heart, around your heart. And, and, and that's just the way it is. Now, when it comes to bacteria in our blood, again, we don't usually live with large amounts of bacteria in our blood. And we live with very small amounts that usually doesn't stay there very long. Because when it does stay there very long, we tend to get very sick. Bacteremia, bacteria surviving and replicating in the blood, tends to make people have fevers and they need IV antibiotics and they're quite sick. It's not, not the usual way to live. That said, we do get sort of these transient washes of bacteria for who knows how long, minutes, hours. They're just not replicating much in the blood, but they are flowing through it. How that affects the heart, I don't know. It's hard to say. I think that that's probably less of a factor in terms of the microbiome effects on the heart than the than the bacterial populations that are set up and living in our body and thriving, most of which are within the GI tract from sort of mouth all the way to the back end. And those are the ones that are, are there 24-7, 365 in large numbers, living somewhat in harmony with us, but not entirely. And, and, and they're, because of their numbers, because of their long-term presence, they're the ones that I think are really altering and affecting our biology in all kinds of ways, some of which we're starting to understand, some of which you probably can't really even imagine. And I think, like you said, I, I think it is, it's certainly proven to be a growth industry of, of research and study in some fields. And I think it's it's sort of er, the dawn of understanding its role in heart disease. And a lot of it remains to be seen exactly how it sets us up for 
inflammatory processes for low levels of inflammation that promote atherosclerosis, yes, but also other forms of injury, microvascular disease in the world of transplant, all the things we worry about there in terms of rejection and long-term survival of that transplanted heart. Assistive pumps that could be placed in line before the heart or right after the heart that would help it instead of, yep. you know, replacing the heart itself. That is sort of the, uh, when, when we describe our people like me describe ourselves as sort of advanced heart failure docs. The major advanced therapies we're talking about are transplant, of course, and then the, the ventricular assist device pumps, which are mechanical pumps, which we sort of, uh, which are surgically implanted to support the ejection of blood from the heart. Ventricular assist devices or VADs or LVADs are a nice alternative to a transplant for a lot of people. You know, picking Again, the art of medicine comes in figuring out who's a good fit for one solution and who's a good fit for the other. They both come with their risks, their complications, and their advantages. Certainly the the ventricular, the, the mechanical ventricular pumps advantages are doesn't require immunosuppression. And that's a huge advantage. We know that again, when it comes to the transplant business, the things we worry about are rejection of that transplanted heart and infections that are a direct result of the medicines we are using to prevent rejection. We know that the immunosuppression we put people on to stop rejection makes them more likely to have infections and have cancers. We know this is true. And sort of transplant medicine is all about balancing risk of rejection and risk of infections and cancers and trying to find sort of some sort of Goldilocks zone to live in. Well, LVADs allow us to sort of dispense with all of that. You don't have to worry about it, that that careful balancing act anymore because uh, we're not putting people on immunosuppression. There is no rejection. Instead, it's got its own baggage, if you will. Its baggage comes in the form of these are pieces of metal. I mean, the pieces of metal are more prone to clotting than a transplanted heart would be. So you have to put people on blood thinners. And they also have a power source, which is obviously different than a transplant. The power source comes out of the person's body and plugs into batteries or wall power. I and mean, as a result, you're, you kind of have a, a permanent line coming out of you, which is a risk for infection on its own right and, and also has the mechanical failures and, and so on and so forth. That said, the mechanical heart pumps, the LVADs really have offered um, really good benefits to people who either weren't great fits for transplants who, or just simply, in some cases, just didn't want one and thought that this was sort of the, the bundle of risks and benefits they preferred. And increasingly, we're seeing with our LVAD pumps, people living longer and doing more. Um, and, it, you know, once upon a time, it was really just considered a, a bridge therapy to get people to a transplant. But in the last decade plus, that's really changed. People are keeping these things for many years, five years, 10 years, even on the outside in a few cases. Uh, they're really getting years of improved quality of life just from a purely technological solution, if you will. So I think when it comes to mechanical pumps and mechanical assist devices, that the future is pretty bright. Technology is presumably going to get better. We're going to get better at putting these things in, at powering them safely, keeping them from clotting. And I think increasingly, it'll become a good option for people, especially because while a bit expensive, they're not a scarce resource. You can only sort of make more of them. You can't do that with transplants. Transplants are a precious commodity and there's only so many to go around. Um, you can always theoretically make more heart pumps. And so I think as more people are aging and more people have heart failure, there'll be increased need for solutions beyond transplant because there's just only so many transplants available. When someone has a heart transplant, how long does it last before they have to either have another or the transplant just fails and they can't get another? Yeah, it varies, certainly. You know, the, the number we still tend to quote at patients is a sort of median or average survival around 11 years. But that's really way factoring into that number is 
is a lot of data from sort of older generations of transplants where people's outcomes weren't as good. So it sort of drags the whole average down because we're factoring in transplants from 20 and 25 years ago. The current generation of transplants, I expect to see even significantly longer than that survival in. On a given week in my transplant clinic, it's, I would say, you know, let's say I see seven patients in a clinic session. Often one of those people is 15, 18, 20 plus years out. Increasingly, we're seeing people, many people reaching 20, 25 plus years after a transplant. Oh, nice. Um, and now, mind you, you know, one of the things that affects how long someone lives is how old they are when they get it. Still, most of our transplant recipients are in their mid-late 50s. Um, when they get a transplant. So expecting 30 years of life, if you transplant a 60-year-old, is perhaps unreasonable no matter what happens to that transplant, just because eventually we all must go. But for our young patients, certainly when our young heart transplant recipients, we, we expect them to, to get decades and decades out of that transplanted heart. That is the expectation. Yeah. Well, what, what happens to somebody that's had a transplant for 10 plus years? Anything right. special? Like, you know, what's their life like once they get it in the beginning versus later on? Yeah, so usually for most of the life of that transplant, the worst year is the first year. That's because they're seeing, you know, first of all, they have to recover from surgeries. They were just probably recently very sick with severe heart failure. They have to recondition themselves. They're on the most immunosuppression, the most steroids, the most of everything. So they have the most complications. We drag them back for biopsies. They get more, you know, there's just a lot going on. Uh, by the time they get to that first or second year after transplant, that sort of second year annual visit, these people are usually off to the races. They're living like they don't think about their heart that much. And that's the idea. And they, they, they tend to live that way for a long time, feeling relatively not like a sick person anymore. Um, and that's the idea. I mean, that, that is what most of our recipients go through. They, by the time they're hitting that first, second year post, they're exercising, working full time, doing their lives, traveling, doing all the things that they wanted to have a transplant to do. And they stay that way for a long time now. You know, again, everyone's on sort of their own timeline with this. The people when I'm seeing them 10, 15, 20 years out from transplant, most of them are cruising just like they were two, three, five years out. And it's not till sort of the very end as those gra as those transplanted hearts start to get sicker, usually with microvascular disease, as we sort of talked about a little bit, which is sort of the way these hearts chronically eventually wear out as they get very stiff and the microvasculature gums up and, and that was sort of this stiff, stiff heart disease with, with decreased blood supply because of microvascular disease. And that's sort of eventually how they fail. But, but that's really late in the game for most people. Um, and, and can be many decades down the road. And for most of that time between that first year, which is a nuisance, and that sort of end game where they're finally actually failing on that transplant, 80, 90% of that time is really high quality of life, not thinking about myself as a heart patient life. That's why we do it. What, what about mechanical heart transplants? How, what's the current state of technology with yeah. them? So they, you know, there's, it's a trickier conversation for a couple of reasons. Generally speaking, if somebody is a good candidate for a transplant or an LVAD, we generally recommend transplant. It's the one we tend to believe is the better really long-term. Again, you're, we don't expect to see LVADs 20, 30 years post-implant walking around. That's not an expectation. Now, there's a variety of reasons someone might not be a great transplant candidate, and, and, and it's largely those people either because they're older because they have other medical problems that make transplant not a good fit for them. And those could include things like a recent cancer. You don't want to put people with recent cancers on immunosuppression. They tend to come back. And it could be things like poorly controlled diabetes or other things that make, make putting them on lots of steroids a bad idea. There's a variety of reasons why someone may not be a great transplant fit. And those are the people we're recommending for LVAD for the most part. And because of that, they probably aren't quite as healthy a batch of people as the people who are getting transplants. And so it probably does affect the, you know, how long the gross statistics on how well they do and how long they live. 
and how functional they are. That said, I've certainly seen LVAD patients who are very active and certainly we see people go back to work within a few months and travel and, and do and able to exert themselves to a moderate degree and we'll run on a treadmill and stuff like that. And we certainly see that. And in terms of how long they get to live like that, it varies. But um, we're definitely seeing our LVAD people cruising along for five plus years regularly now. Average survive, you know, about 75, 80% easily are making it to one year. And, and once they make it to one year, they usually do pretty well for a few years. And, and we're seeing plenty of them, plenty of them seeing five, five, seven, eight, eight years plus now, um, which is not, not as good as transplant, but a lot better than the curve they were on before they got the LVAD when we were talking about months to potentially to live. Okay. But what do you see as the future of your work over the next few years and then longer term? If you look at those two uh, vistas, yeah. what's happening? Yeah. So what's happening is, like I said, in the transplant business, we get a lot of tissue from people's hearts. The awareness that, that I'm sort of the paradigm I'm working under is that those tissue samples are being dramatically undermined. Uh, by that, I mean, we're not extracting nearly all the information that's contained in, within them that we could be. Information that's relevant to patient prognosis, to how they're responding to the treatments we have them on, their risk of future things. And so my focus is very much on sort of maximally extracting information from precious biosamples and tissue samples we're getting from our transplant population. That means improving the way we diagnose rejection, improving the way we predict people who are at risk for future rejection, improving the way we identify people who are at risk for this microvascular disease of transplant many years down the road. Well, it turns out that there's even looking at someone's biopsies at six months or one year after transplant. There's a pretty good signature if you do a really rigorous sort of, again, computer vision image analysis of that tissue, really quantify what's present just under a microscope, that you can identify people who are going to have bad vascular disease in five years um, versus people who won't. That's relevant if we ever want to find a way to treat people and prevent those things from developing. It's first you need to know who your risky people are. And so I think very much what I'm going to be focusing on and continue to focus on is, is extracting information from these tissue samples that let us take better care of people, identify low-risk and high-risk people, and start sort of targeting the high-risk people with new types of treatments that hopefully turn their course around. So that's sort of the thrust of the work. That's the work I've been doing and the work I'm kind of quite passionate about. It's a, a nice marriage of modern technology and clinical medicine that I think will improve the way we diagnose diseases and, and care for people. And I think it's got while I'm a heart transplant doctor, I think it's going to be applicable to the rest of the transplanted organs. I think it's going to, it's sort of a, a change in the way we look at our tissue samples that, that has applications well beyond my particular niche of interest. All right, last question here. What uh, kind of tests can people get to tell them that they're on the road to having heart problems? And, you know, what kind of results of their tests would show them that versus not like a calcium heart score? What's that yeah. about? What, you know, what else? Right. So increasingly, obviously, people are just, just sort of as I was referring to with my transplant population, I mean, the non-transplant population, people also want to know well in advance who the high and low risk people are. Obviously, doctors want to know that, and so do patients. Uh, everybody wants to know kind of what's down the road for them, because uh, the sooner they know about it, the sooner they can either prepare themselves or try and seek ways to sort of change their course. For quite a few years now, as you said, sort of coronary calcium scores and, and, and screening CAT scans like that have been an available technology that for subsets, small groups of people make sense. There are populations of people who have cholesterol that's not perfect, but not terrible, and family histories that are not perfect, but not terrible. And it's hard to decide whether we should be putting these people on medications to prevent to, to lower their cholesterol, statin therapies, or, or other things, or how aggressive to be in their care. Things like coronary calcium scores help us make that decision. If don't have any coronary calcium and you're of a certain age where we would 
potentially expect to see it if you had were at risk. You know, the result of that test can tell us you maybe don't need to be on statin medicines right now. Whereas if we do see some calcium in there, it, it pretty much tells us that you're already developing early signs of atherosclerosis and that we should be serious and aggressive in our prevention strategy. So that's sort of the world of coronary calcium scores as they existed. For these sort of intermediate gray area people, it's a really nice test to sort of nudge them onto one side of the line. They either do need aggressive treatment or they don't. And, and that's a one way to, to parse that out. Other forms of sort of longer term prognosis and screening that are available um, for people who have certain risk factors, diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, obesity, and are of a certain age, there are blood tests you can get that help determine sort of next steps for you. Um, quite a few years now in the guidelines, there's been a an option to consider getting a, a BNP blood test, a um, natriuretic peptide blood test on certain patients with certain risk factors to try and figure out whether or not you should proceed to getting a screening echocardiogram on them. Most people don't need a screening echocardiogram. Echocardiograms are mostly a way to look at the heart if somebody has some specific reason to look at their heart. But for a subset of people who have a, a BNP value that's high enough, um, on a screening BNP blood test, just in your primary care doctor's office, the recommendation is to get an echo to look more closely for signs of, of, of early heart dysfunction. Again, in the thought that if you pick these people up early enough, you can really prevent the onset of symptomatic heart failure, or at least kick it down the road quite a few years by just sort of aggressive risk vector management early instead of once they finally have symptoms and feel terrible. And that's sort of the current state of this, but I think in the future, we can expect to see genetic risk screening and profiling becoming an increasing player in this um, and really sort of trying to, to merge all of the different limbs of sort of screening into a composite score that help us tailor therapy a little better to individuals. Uh, I think that's really what the 21st century is about, is, is using this sort of proliferation of genetic knowledge, molecular knowledge, image analysis, blood tests, all these things, and, and trying to find ways to sort of integrate all of them together to really have precision uh, medicine approaches and really personalized approaches to the care of people. I think that's unquestionably the the, sh the near future in primary care and, and, and sort of preventative cardiology, integrating these these different limbs of testing to, to personalize risk stratification and personalized treatment. Okay, very good. Well, Elliot, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and your work? They can find out about my work by Googling me, like everyone does with everybody. Certainly Google works and PubMed works. Uh, PubMed is obviously where everything that's published tends to end up dumped. I pretty much almost exclusively publish things as open source, which means that they should be readable to all. Costs a little extra money at publication, but I firmly believe that good science needs to be available to all people, not just people with subscriptions. And so everything I write is pretty much open source and found with a quick Google or PubMed search. My practice is at the University of Pennsylvania, mostly in the, the heart transplant clinics there and the inflammatory cardiomyopathy, inflammatory disease of the heart clinics there. Certainly you can find me on the, the University of Pennsylvania health system website. And then for other ways to find me, um, I Certainly give plenty of talks and, and continue to publish and, and think over the next couple of years, what we're going to see is a, a real integration of sort of the computer vision image analysis world with, with healthcare. And I think we're going to see computers take on an increasingly important role in achieving the type of precision medicine I was just talking about. It is my goal and my passion, for lack of a better word, to, to drive that change within heart failure medicine. I think the future is right there. Well, very good. Elliot, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.